Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. This is The Finch Show. I'm James Finch. Um, if you've never listened to the podcast before, I want to thank you for being a new addition to our little tribe here. Um, for those of you who have listened before, welcome back. I love each and every one of you. Um, the interactions that I get on social media with people has been absolutely amazing. I, I feel like I don't state that enough. The people who have uh, private messaged me or commented, uh, you guys are all great. Fantastic. And it absolutely warms my heart um, to talk to each and every one of you. So don't stop. I absolutely love it. But moving along to today, my podcast has a guest again, and my guest this time is Laura High, who is a comedian um, from New York City. If you're not following her on TikTok, I don't know why you're on TikTok, because you should be, because she's absolutely hysterical. She's funny, insightful, uh, and just an all-around pleasant human being. We had such a wonderful conversation. Um, so I hope you enjoy the podcast. I'm going to start stop talking and introduce... Ladies and gentlemen, here is Laura. That is so weird. They did the Zoom um, update a while back, and now this like really ominous woman speaks in your ear now. Recording started, and I'm like, oh, geez, okay. I like it. Let's let's um, you know, we're we're just admitting to robot overlord. Yeah, I mean, might as well lean into it, right? Alexa runs my house. I've got like uh, I've got Alexa. I've got Siri. I've got an Echo. Now I have the Zoom lady, Google Maps lady, who loves to yell at me when I take a wrong direction. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I just wish that um, things like uh, when you're doing Google turn by turn, you could change the voice. Like if I could get Samuel L. Jackson, doesn't to... that exist? Like you can actually get Samuel L. Jackson now. What? I thought that actually is like a new feature. Whoa, that's what I need. That's what I need. Either, yeah. Oh, I God. mean, I'd much rather have Samuel Samuel L. Jackson yell like, wrong turn, motherfucker. <laughs> like, passive aggressive lady that reminds me of like my racist aunt going like, you made a wrong turn. Yeah, make the like, next available U-turn. Oh, thanks, Nana. Okay. that's uh... <laughs> So um, I, I always do like a, a pre-thing like prior to every podcast. So anybody who's listening already knows that I'm here with Laura High. Um, comedian, when did uh, when did that start for you? I, I mean, that's, I, I guess it depends on what which part you're talking about. Cause I have been a, I've been into comedy and I've been trying to make people laugh since I was about three, four years old. And I always knew at like starting at four year olds at four year old, four years old, I have a job in communications. This is fine. Um, that I wanted to make people laugh. That was always what I wanted to do. I wanted to be on stage. I wanted to make people laugh and that was it. And I instantly went into theater. I started, you know, doing every single show I could possibly do. I went to college and got a degree in theater performance. And I was always cast as like the comedic side role. And my, I had like my specialty, what I was known for is like my comedic acting. And then I got to New York City. I started auditioning for theater and I was in a theater production and one of the audience members was like, are you a stand-up comic? And I'm like, no, I've, I've never done that in my life. And they're like, you just read your lines like a stand-up comic. And that kind of got stuck in my head because I always loved stand-up comedy. I always loved stand-up comedy. But I was like, you know, I could never do that. What are you, what are you insane? And, but it just didn't get out of my head. And I looked around and I found at Caroline's Comedy Club that they have a stand-up course taught by Linda Smith, who still teaches it to this day. And it's called Caroline School of Comedy. And I thought, you know what? Why don't I just go take the course? It's going to be fun. 
and I'll learn joke structure better. And that's going to help me be a better comedic actress. Perfect. I took it and I fell in love with it. I was so enamored by the joke writing process. And we, for our graduation show, we had a graduation show at Caroline's on Broadway. We got to go on the stage and everything. And it was so amazing because I grew up going to Caroline's, going to Comic Strip Live, going to Broadway Comedy Club. So now I get to be on this stage, which was like insane to me. And I was the first one up on the lineup. And right before I got up on stage, I remember forgetting all of my lines, all of my words. And then I got up on stage, I grabbed the mic and my set came back to me. And it was this instant feeling of, oh shit, I'm home. It was, it was love at first, Mike. It was mm. the greatest feeling. And I definitely sort of, um, fucked around a bit for a few years because I didn't understand like how much work it took to being a stand-up comic. And I was also given horrible advice from an older veteran comic to not ever do open mics. So that set me behind for a few years. And then once I refigured that one out and I started going to open mics regularly, then I started actually becoming a comic for the first time. <laughs> I was like, oh, this takes like daily practice. Oops, didn't realize that, <laughs> my bad. <laughs> Um, but I would say that I've been doing stand-up now for, uh, we're, we're probably closing in on nine years. Okay. All right. Yeah. The, um, what, do you have any, I guess I would say, uh, comics, former or current comics that you can list that were either A, inspiring to you then, or even inspiring to you now? Um, Robin Williams absolutely will always be be there. He was, uh, Robin Williams Live at the Met was the very first comedy special I ever saw. And actually it was, uh, my mom watched it when she was eight months pregnant with me. And she said that she was laughing so much that her tummy vibrated. So it really was the first special I ever watched. In utero. In utero. Uh, but I watched it again when I was like, I think in middle school. And I remember just dying over this. I thought it was the coolest thing ever. And then I really, and then as I got, let me see what happened. Sarah Silverman kind of entered the picture. Patton Oswald entered the picture. Um, Eddie Azard entered the picture. Wanda Sykes. Oh my God. Wanda Sykes. Oh God. Right? Jeez. <laughs> if you want to just see like a perfect comedy special, go watch Wanda Sykes' I'm a Be Me. Mm -hmm. I found that one in college and I was just like, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. And I just like, watched it on a loop. It's absolutely fantastic. Um, but I would say Ricky Gervais, another one I really got into. And that's also when I really started watching like The Daily Show, Colbert Report, which obviously has a lot of stand-up in it. Um, and obviously much later on, Last Week Tonight, and I would say that those shows really inspired me a lot and my stand-up comedy without even really me knowing it at the time was that I loved how those shows shined light into dark places, mm. how they were talking and handling about dark subject matter, but they were doing it with a, a set-up punchline format that made it so much more palatable. Mm -hmm. And I realized, I was like, why are more people... Why are more people watching The Daily Show and Colbert Report than they are on watching the news? Because they're... <laughs> Like, why? Why are they doing that? And it, it was like, because it's easier to take in. It's nicer to take in. It's easier to take in all this dark subject matter with at least some kind of levity and humanity. And that really kind of got me and touched me a bit and was like, 
And that really made me figure out like what kind of stand up I want to be is like, I want to talk about dark things. I want to talk about the hard shit. I don't want to just talk about like, man, like, you know, shoes are weird. I, you know, that <laughs> classic, classic shoes bit. Classic. Yeah. <laughs> it, you know, I'm pretty sure Carson had one. Yeah. The, yeah. Um... Uh, Carson is another one who was also mm. really influential because I grew up watching like Johnny Carson reruns. Mm. So for me, um, I also saw like, you know, uh, the original like George Carlin five minute set. I saw the original oh. like, you know, it's, oh, it's fantastic. Um, George Carlin's first five. Uh, God, what else did um, you can like go on and just watch like Ellen DeGeneres's first five minute set. Go watch Drew Carey's first five minute set. Go watch Eddie Murphy's. Go watch um david letterman's go watch day leno's it's incredible mm -hmm. to watch watch joan crawford's i'm uh, not joan crawford sorry joan rivers wrong, <laughs> wrong joan wrong joan um but go go watch joan rivers first five minutes set. it's incredibly interesting watching their first late night sets mm -hmm. um but watching Johnny Carson in terms of how he handled the crowd, how he essentially handled crowd work, how he interviewed everything was just really phenomenal. And it's a fantastic lesson on how to host a show. Mm -hmm. the, uh, the, um, yeah, God, George Carlin. Oh my God. I, I remember, um, you know, and as a kid, I know dating myself, I grew up like, you know, at bed in bed at night with my parents watching Johnny Carson. Um, and um really dating myself when i was a kid i loved uh bill cosby we're not going to get into the after of that but um yeah like before he started doing the cosby show because he'd have these specials that he'd put out on audio cassette and it was really like gpg rated and i remember having the cassette tapes of those and you know putting on the walkman and playing it and standing on top of my dresser and pretending i was you know right there at the Apollo and doing the whole show. And yeah, oh, but yeah. I mean, when, when, you know, when, when Cosby was, was more, um, I would say happily in the news. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Every, I think everybody was doing that at 100%. Yeah. The, um, and do you think, cause this is one of the things that, that has always fascinated me and I've listened to, um, a lot of comedians. I, I've talked to several, um, and listened to several, podcast with comedians and it seems to me there is such a diverse makeup and background of comedians like you're not like oh like this type of person's a comedian like you know you have some people who have like really kind of dark past and then you have some people who are just kind of like they came up like a normal person they just kind of have a knack for being funny um I don't know man do you have any kind of uh input on that or feelings towards it I think it's really amazing and it's one of the things that and, and I will say that that is a manifestation of a newer generation of comedy because that didn't used to be the case. I mean, if you go back to um, certainly like the 50s, 60s and also like 70s, 80s and 90s and then the 2000s, it's all very much one kind of comic. It is one kind of story that's getting pushed out. And I do, and that is not the case anymore, especially within this last decade when I would say that I, when I entered the scene, sort of the old ways were just starting to die out. And I got really lucky with that. Um, right now, it is so incredibly diverse. It is diverse within types of people, types of backgrounds, you have the amount, it is the most diverse place in my life. And I absolutely love it. And I think that it really shows us that one comedy is universal. 
everybody wants to laugh. You can find comedy no matter where you're from, what you believe, what your gender is, what your race is. Uh, it doesn't matter. You can find funny. And it's a universal language. And I think that is so cool and it's so beautiful. And there's something to find funny in everybody's life. Everybody can have a funny perspective. And I think that that's really cool. And I love it. I love how diverse it is. And because I now go to a comedy club and the, um, I'm trying to figure, like, right now how it is is you're not going to hear the same kind of story it's not really stand-up comedy is no longer i would refer to as sort of like a danger field world where mm -hmm. you know every comic is going like oh my god my wife kill me you know ain't, you know no respect it's not that anymore yeah you it isn't like i'll go um i'll go to a show and oh okay so a lineup that i just saw was my uh my fiance was hosting I mean, my fiance is very much a, he's more observational. He's a, you know, he's a cis straight white guy and he does really fantastic observational. He does some political stuff, um, really funny, very nice and very charming, very Pete Holmes-esque. The next comic after him um, was a fantastic comic. Um, his name is Eagle Wit and Eagle does a lot of dirty shit. He does, um, Eagle is, I believe he's mixed race. Um, and his perspective is one of the funniest things you will ever see. If you ever have a chance to go see Eagle Whip perform, I cannot recommend it enough. He is genuinely one of the most funny comedians I've ever seen. And he talks about his background. He talks about how he's a fuck boy. And it is absolutely fantastic. And he will call out white hypocrisy in the best most in the best way I've ever seen another comic do. <laughs> and then there was another comic after him who um, has a Pakistani background, and he talks about growing up during 9/11. Um, and it was one of the most heart wrenching and hysterical sets I've ever seen. So those are three completely different sets. Mm -hmm. You couldn't find that in the 90s. That okay. th Those sets wouldn't have been allowed to be on the same show together. Mm -hmm. And these are three guys who all were, like none of their jokes were at all, there, there was no overlap. There was nothing. I'm pointing to my wall like I have a whiteboard. There was... <laughs> nothing similar about their sets except they were all funny but all being genuine and all telling their story and they were all giving pieces of themselves mm -hmm. and they were all being vulnerable and they were all allowing you to laugh at their circumstances and situation and it was a killer killer show it was amazing and there there was there was more comedians on it but the, um those were just like kind of the first three that i i could remember off the top of my head but um, I think that that's something that should be really celebrated within comedy is that comedy is the most, in my opinion, successful when you allow for every story to be told mm -hmm. because you never know where it's going to be found. 
Mm-hmm. You never, ever know. One of my favorite comedians, her name is Zarna Garg. She is on um, TikTok as well. I don't know if you've seen her. No, no, but I'm gonna going to now. Go check out Zarna Garg. Zarna Garg is, um, she's from India. She's a mother of three. She is now middle-aged, and she is one of the funniest fuckers I've ever seen. <laughs> she, you wouldn't, it like, you meet her, and you're just like, oh, my God, like, this is a nice mom. Like, she's great. This woman will tear you down with her jokes. <laughs> it is. I mean, it, it comes out a left field, and she comes out swinging with a hammer. And... <laughs> But her perspective is something I've never heard. It's never something I have heard. It's interesting. It's it's got such texture and nuance and vulnerability to it. And these are jokes I've never heard before. I've never heard these jokes being told before. And she is just ever I've never seen her not absolutely destroy and murder the house. I've never seen her even do just okay. Mm-hmm. Never. <laughs> and I cannot recommend every so everybody, yes, please go, please go follow my uh, fiance, Dave Colombo. Please go follow Eagle Wit and please go follow Zarna Garg. They are, you know, three completely different stories and they're fabulous to watch. Mm-hmm. That's uh yeah, you nailed it on the head. Just it's like one of my um fondest memories mainly because it took place like a week before we went into COVID lockdown as a nation so this would have been like you know end of February early March a couple years ago and my wife and I went into Chicago and went to the Laugh Factory and they had a show that we got tickets for and went into where I think they had um, six different comedians um, who each had 10 minutes on stage and it was just one right after another and it amazed me as the show was progressing that each and every one of these comedians had a different background, had, had a different look, had a different, I don't want to use the word shtick because that almost sounds dismissive, um, but just a, a completely different persona that they were doing. And every single one of them was absolutely hysterical. And that was one of the things that kind of occurred to me. And that's, I think you um, made, uh, put it much more eloquently than I could. Um, I barely stumbled through it. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. The um, Gosh, I'll never forget the one comedian who was up there, um, Maddie Weiner. Um, who, and we listen to this podcast. Now, interestingly enough, I saw her on stage at the Laugh Factory. And then afterwards, we ended up becoming friends and she's been on this podcast, um, who was just like, oh my gosh. And I, I try to tell anybody like, folks, go go find her if you can. Um, as a side note, one of the things that I'm interested in, um, I, I've never really applied myself to joke writing. But one of the things that I enjoy doing is joke deconstructing like reverse engineering. I love hearing a joke or whether it's in a podcast or even if it's, uh, you know, on a standup on Netflix or something like that and trying to like get in the head of the comedian and like take the joke back. Like where did that, um, so how does that whole process work for you? Um, I mean, I love also deconstructing a joke when I hear like a perfect joke. I love going back and going like, why was that joke so perfect? And one of my favorite jokes to deconstruct is, uh, have you ever heard, do, do, you, do you like Patton Oswalt? Oh, yes. The sky cake bit. Yes. Do you know it? Yes. That to me is a perfect bit. Mm-hmm. That to me is a perfect bit. Another one would be John Mulaney's um, boss duck story is another perfect bit. 
But the sky cake bit, um, for any guys who, who've never heard it, so Patton Oswald is a, he's a very staunch atheist, but he's I would say he's a very nice staunch atheist. Like he's mm-hmm. he's he's not gonna he's not he's not a dick about it, but he's very vocal about it. And he talks about the idea that, you know, I get I get why rich religion exists. I get why we had it because everybody was like just raping and murdering each other and we had to stop getting people to rape and murder each other. So we basically so everyone just was like, okay, there's a sky cake. There's a sky cake in the sky. It's the best cake you've ever had. And if you stop raping and pillaging, you get sky cake. Okay. You get sky cake. And that's the setup. And it's brilliant. It's a great, that's exactly what it is. It's brilliant. But then he keeps going and then he plays the game. Well, if this is true. What else is true? Which to me is always the best game to play when you are doing stand-up because you keep diving more and more into the world. And so he kept going on and going like, okay, so let's keep going with this metaphor. How does this relate to our current situation? Well, he's like, well, some people didn't believe in sky cake. They believe in sky baklava, sky pie, sky cupcakes, sky cookie. (laughs) And he's like, and we couldn't let people have their sky baklava because people would just be like, no, no, it's sky cake. And the fact that somebody doesn't believe in my sky cake takes away from my sky cake. Sky cake. It's brilliant. And it's a perfect meadow. It's it's just it's it's mwah. I love it. And it it's it's a fabulous because the thing about a perfect joke is that it is it's simple in nature so that people can see exactly what you're seeing. Sasha Baron Cohen said to me it, it said it perfectly. Everybody can be funny. Everybody can be. But what you have to do is figure out how to get everybody, how to get the audience to see exactly what you see. Mm-hmm. And so you have to keep the joke simple enough. You have to paint the picture quickly enough and well enough so they can, they're instantly there with you. And then you have small setups and big, giant, dropping punchlines. And then you keep going on it to expand the joke as to then, okay, now if this is true, what else is true? If this is true, what else is true? I believe Eddie Azard did that with his Death Star video. Well, so the Death Star, it was this like self-containing, you know, essentially planet um, where everybody worked and that was their job. And so it had to have a cafeteria, right? So imagine Darth Vader going to the cafeteria. And then you keep playing with it. You keep going, okay, well, and then and you can keep going farther than that. And you're like, okay, so if there's a cafeteria, then there have to be like dorms. Is there like a Death Star RA? What does the RA do? <laughs> does it do like stormtrooper bonding activities? Like what are the snacks that they bring? I just, I'm curious. And you just keep playing within that world. And that is, and that's where you can really sort of figure out the joke structure, how they how they sort of went about their joke, um, but there's always a simple. But to me, what really makes always a good joke is there's a simplicity to it. There's a cl- the the writing is always clean, sharp, and it's exactly how many words it has to be, no more, no less. Mm-hmm. And then they just dive into the roots and figure out what else is there, what else can I find, and that to me is really where you get the amazing jokes and bits. Mm-hmm. You, you go through this process. Yes. There's one thing that's always interested me. You, you write jokes from that, you put together a set. You get up on stage. How much of comedy is thinking um, on your toes and reacting to the crowd that you're dealing with? Because I have to imagine it's not like every crowd is room full of people who are just ready to bust up laughing at a moment's notice. <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot of diversity there. Yes. Uh, no. Well, it's it's mixed because... 
It is a lot more, I do think it is a lot more planned out than I think a lot of people realize. I do think that it is. Now, the more and more you do stand up, the more that you're willing to sort of like try on the fly stuff like in the clubs, like during a paid show. But typically it's like, if you're doing a paid show, you really want to just do stuff that like, you know, is going to work because you want to, you know, make sure everybody has a good time and a good show. Um, but if you wanted to try something new out, like at a paid show, typically the comics will sort of throw those new jokes in the middle. Mm-hmm. And then they'll always like kind of buffer them in between like, you know, a good opener and good closer. But um, most most of it is very is very planned out where the comic sits and writes for hours and hours, days and days, weeks and weeks, months and months. And we'll try that stuff out at potentially an open mic um, or a show that they know is very, very low stakes that they can kind of like, eh, let's just throw this at the wall. Let's see what happens. Uh, but when you get into like those real pro comedy club shows, typically those are things that they've done and they have tried and they know that will work. Even crowd work is we sort of have like a file cabinet in our head of of crowd work. I have bits because I work in New York City most of the time. So typically this is a tourist city. Um, obviously right now we ain't getting too many tourists at the moment, but um, typically we do. And like, I would do a show where I would have like a family from Australia, a couple from France. I would have a, you know, two, a couple of friends from North Dakota, a couple people from Florida and maybe like a business trip from England. And so I've now developed a giant file cabinet of jokes based off of where you're from. Because it's like, so I've got some Australia jokes ready to go. I have Oregon jokes ready to go. I have Florida jokes ready to go. I have Belgium jokes ready to go. Because I've just, I've, they've just been in the audience so many times that just you sort of develop that crowd work and you can just, so it looks like it is on the fly, but we sort of have like this template already in place. Mm-hmm. And we sort of have these things where we are in this very similar situations a lot of the times. Mm-hmm. Um, but you always need to treat each crowd differently. They're always unique. It's always a conversation. And this crowd is not exactly like your last crowd. So you always have to be sort of fluid in that sense. But it's a lot more like, oh, hey, rowdy guy. I just dealt with like five rowdy guys before you. So yes, haha, we're going to do this a little bit together. <laughs> Shut up. All right. Thank you so much. Moving on. Um, And it's like, you know, I've shut down like five rowdy guys in the exact same way because I'm like, I just, I know that structure kind of works. And it's like, okay, well, we're going to do this little bit and it's going to feel like it's just for you, but it's not. (laughs) Um, And yeah, and it's, so the, the, it, it really varies. It really, really varies. There's no real hard and fast rule, but certainly when you see like a comedy special, everything there is practiced word perfect everything is just like yes we we have this knockdown mm-hmm. the um do you um i apologize i hope i didn't cut you off there no 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 no. um do you first of all uh, is nervousness something that uh you deal with at all or is that something that gets managed over time or disappears over time it depends on which show. I mean, there are certainly shows that I was nervous to do in the beginning, but now I'm just like, meh. Now they're just like, whatever. It's a, it's a normal Tuesday night now. But there are shows that I'm still just like, oh, I'm about to go headline Caroline. Yeah, I'm a little nervous right now. Mm-hmm. I'm on stage for 40 minutes. I really fucking hope I don't suck. <laughs> right. Um, 
I went and did four shows at Comedy Shrine in Aurora, Illinois, right outside Chicago. And that, and they booked me for 45 minutes, which was the most time I've ever done. And it was like, I'm headlining, not in New York city. Like, this isn't like my, my, my like yum, yum crowd. Like, I'm like, I, I hope to God, they like what I do. I don't know anyone here. And it was, that was really nerve wracking. That was terrifying. Cause I was like, I've never, this is my first time headlining on the road. I was really scared. And I'm like, I'm going to really pretend like I'm going to know what I'm doing. And we're going to really just um, pray. And um, I, I don't know, like just keep thinking happy thoughts on me. I, the amount of deodorant I put on for those first shows was. <laughs> Do you think, does it, does the size of the crowd impact that at all? Um, yes. When the crowd is bigger, it's easier. Mm -hmm. If the crowd is smaller, you know, you have way more work. Yes. If the yes. crowd is larger, it's typically you feel a little bit better because you're just like, okay, so if I can figure out what gets you guys going, we're going to be fine. <laughs> well, even with us, I mean, now I love small crowds. I love late night crowds. That's how I really started doing stand up was late nights was with uh, late night. Late night is a thing um, that existed more with clubs, but it's just not really as much of a regular thing anymore. But at Comic Strip Live, what they used to do, uh, Comic Strip Live was like the oldest club in New York City, is the oldest club in New York City, it's still there, my apologies. And they would have late night where all the new comics would perform five minute sets after the main show. So you have people who have now been there for like two and a half hours who are now watching a bunch of like 20 year olds do five minute sets about their dick because they're all new comics and that's all what 20 year olds are going to do. Right. And like, did you ever see the show crashing? No. There's a great bit where there's like a newer, where there's like a big Hulk and guy who just like humps a stool on stage. And I'm like, yes, I know that guy. Like, <laughs> that's basically what it was. And so that was how I started was doing late night. So I'm doing late night. I'm doing my five minute set two years in and I suck but I'm doing it for like two drunk Aussies who have been there for like three hours at this point. So for me, <laughs> I'm used to working with small crowds, but it is nerve wracking. When you have a bigger crowd, there is a little bit of like, okay, I just got to figure it out with them. And then once I figure out their button, it's going to be okay. This is going to be fun. But <laughs> it is, it is nerve wracking because it is, it, it is, especially when you do see a large crowd like that, you're just like, this is a lot of people to watch me fail. Right. You know, that's, that's funny you say that. I, um, I have a, a history of being on stage, not for comedy. Um, side note, my, my, a lot of my background is actually in history. So a lot of times I would do historical related shows and stuff like that. And I made the interesting observation. And I love the way you said it is that the bigger the crowd was, um, the less nervous I was because it just became like a mass. It just became like a mass of people. Um, but when it becomes intimate, you know, when it's a smaller crowd, I'll never forget this. This was probably like five years ago. And I get this email one time. There was a, God, I can't remember the name of it. There was this woman's organization in town that wanted me to come give a lecture on women in the American Civil War. And I'm like, okay, they gave me a date and an address and, you know, they were going to pay me for it. And I'm like, okay, this is, you know, this is a gig I can do. That's, that's all right. That's cool. Yeah. When I actually drive to the address, I pull up in front of a ranch house in a residential neighborhood. And I'm like, what in the ass? And I go inside and it is, I, I shit you not, it is these, these sweetest people, these seven little old ladies 
sitting at a long kitchen table and they want me to sit at the head of the table and just give this talk. Oh my God. <laughs> and there's doilies and you know, you'd be like, you'd be, I'd look and be looking at my note cards that I'd rehearse and I'd be like, and then in 1863, the women auxiliary corps and some little lady would be like, do you want more sugar? Uh, yeah, that'd be great. Thank you. So in 18, I, I, I hope to God that out of all niceness that in their elderly age, their smell had started to go because I know I was just like sweating buckets through that whole thing. I had never oh. been more nervous and more worked up in my whole life. I, I, I was so far outside my comfort zone, which is funny because had it been an auditorium with, you know, maybe yeah. a couple hundred, a couple thousand people, it never would have impacted me that way. So that's interesting the way you put it like that. Well, because that's a completely different structure. I had a show last year where it actually very similar thing. I was told like, oh, you're going to do a show for a bunch of like doctors and lawyers in New York City. And I'm like, oh, doctors and lawyers in New York City. Fabulous. I can totally do that. And so I'm like going through, I'm like, this is going to be fine. This is going to be easy. This is going to be, this is going to be fine. Um, so I got my set. I was going to do 30 minutes and I was like, this will be great. So I get there and it's this giant. And like, I'm thinking this must be like a convention or something. I get there and I'm at a brownstone. I'm at like a townhouse. And I'm like, oh, hi. I walk in and no joke, it looks like the set of The Purge. <laughs> People are wearing masks. Everything what? is painted white. I'm like, what the fuck? Am I going to get eaten? Like, this is insane. <sighs> and I go and they're like, oh, yeah. And, and I go and I'm like, hi. I'm here for the night and of, and just because we wanted to be stereotypical and caricatures everyone who worked there spoke Russian and I'm just like oh sure this is great I go up to, and they're like go to the second floor and I go to the second floor and it looks like an oligarch's like sex done sex <laughs> that's what it looks like everything is red velvet from the ceiling to the floor there's all these weird little led bogos flying around there's like it's just there's big red velvet plush everywhere and i'm just like oh and then i have like the maitre d and again he's russian so apologies for my horrible russian accent but i'm like i am Laura. so exactly like what is this and he was like oh you're going to do a show for, um, there's just lots of uh, very important rich people, lots of financial people, ve very important people. And we're going to be bringing in the supermodels as well. And I'm just like, oh my God. <laughs> and I go into the room and it's not a stage. It's literally like a parlor room with like essentially booth seats. So there are people who are going to have their back to me. And I'm like, this is great. There's no like, stage or anything i'm just i'm in the middle of tables in a little itty and it's just like fine and they start bringing in the guests and it was literally like central casting asked for like it was like a casting call for like who can be the most stere stereotypical russian mobster who can be <laughs> And in comes these guys who have fake spray tans, no hair, big dudes, gold chains, open shirts, chest hairs. I mean, it was perfect in many ways. And then the supermodels came in and I'm just, I, I, should, I mean, supermodels, I really, they, they were just very, um, very, very, very lovely escorts, um, you know, very, very lovely escorts. And so I came in and I'm going to like start doing my set and I'm like, I have no fucking clue how this thing is gonna go and I walk in and so I maybe get two minutes into my set and then they bring me a shot 
and I'm just like, oh, I have to drink this in front of you. You need to make sure I drink your poison. Like, this is great. Is this seasoning? Are you making more? Am I about to be sacrificed? So I take the shot. It was lovely. And I was like, well, if I'm going, this is how I'm dying. We were just going to accept this. And I remember, like, I'm getting through my set, and I'm like, this is just insanity what I'm doing right now and I'm working like it is I have to work so hard and then there's one guy and he was the most stereotypical looking guy there I mean and he's sitting right by the fireplace again no hair silk shirt opened chest hair gold chains spray on tan bodies oiled big dude and I'm just like looking at him the whole and I just like don't want to make eye contact with him and then finally I do and I'm just like so sir what do you do for a living why not and he just looks at me and he's like, I'm a priest. <laughs> and so then I say, yeah, uh, yeah, I'm sure you are. Because you look like the guy who has a lot of people praying in front of you saying, don't kill me. <laughs> and the laugh that got was way too loud and made me very uncomfortable, which was like, Apparently, I'm like, there's, I'm like, this is red flag, red flag, red flag everywhere, red flags, red flags. <laughs> and then um, another comic was um, going to go up after me. He's a fantastic comic named Ian Lara. And both him and I had the same reaction. We both got there and we were just like, are we about to die? Like, we were like, this is not what we signed up for. Now, he was smarter than me. He looked at me and he was like, you drank the shot? And I was like, they were watching me. He was like, I faked it. What are you doing? And I was like, God damn it. <laughs> But yeah, those weird shows are much harder than like a typical like, oh, look, there's the stage. Go do 20. Um, They are because it's like you're not doing a normal show. You are being you're sort of just thrown into the lion's den and you're being expected to be funny under any circumstance. And you really figure out like. How flexible am I? How? How? How how funny can I be under pressure? Right. Yeah, I know those moments are tough. They are. But they're also fantastic and they make great stories. And that story uh, did, I, I filmed that, I, I told that story on TikTok and it did well. It made a, it made a good video, which I was excited about. Um, and I'm pretty sure I, I called my manager afterwards and I was like, what the fuck did you book me on, man? Like, that was funny, but still, like, that was concerning. Yeah. Was it a decent paying gig at least? It was fine <laughs> just fine <laughs> not like was, i couldn't yeah i mean like you know it was during you know it was during like very serious it was during um like that was one of the first gigs i got like after i got vaccinated so i was like i will take any money right now that's fine mm-hmm. so i was yeah. like yes this is worth almost death now yeah. i'm like no we're doubling my rate for that shit again <laughs> <laughs> excuse me um you know the the bizarre thing is um do you do you ever have these periods um doing stand-up where um you have a show booked and you've worked the show and you know what you're doing um and yet when the day of it comes you're just like internally just not feeling it like it's almost like a, a forcing yourself like okay i gotta i gotta be the funny person i gotta be the funny person i'm not feeling like the funny person today but i mean are those is that kind of a, a thing that you ever have to deal with yeah, I mean, I've performed in middle in the middle of like anxiety attacks. 
Mm-hmm. I have an anxiety disorder, and yeah, there are times where I'm just like off stage going, <laughs> "Hey, everybody, how are we doing today? My name is Laura. Where are you from? What do you do? That shirt is weird." And mm-hmm. I, you know, you're just like, "I'm gonna make it work," and it sucks. Um, there have been times where I've been in the middle of like tears, and I, I'm going on stage, and that's just like, "Hi, I'm fine. Everybody, everything's fine, guys. We're good." Pew 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 pew, <laughs> and um. No, that absolutely happens when you are just tired and exhausted and you're just like, I have to entertain. And it's kind of like, it, it's almost, you, you have to fight, I would say, like the Joker urge where you sort of are just like, I want to watch the world burn. Mm-hmm. And you just want to go up on stage and just be like, fuck all of you all right now. And I'm going to tell you why. You have to sort of fight that urge every once in a while where you just like, I'm going to go spit some truth. <laughs> Gonna drop some truth bombs. I'm gonna drop some truth bombs on you. (laughs) I'd say that's what I I think a lot of comedians struggle with sometimes is like they just want to go up. It's it's fighting the urge to just rant Mm -hmm. if they have a really fucking bad day or they're just feeling something and you're just like it's supposed to be funny, right? Don't make the the uh, vacationing family from North Carolina feel like. It's <laughs> not the time to read your manifesto. It's, right. Yeah, you, you know, we always have to remember that it is a job. This isn't just like you're given a mic to like, you know, preach. Um, and you, you have a job that you are getting paid to do and you need to do the job. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I do think that that is something that we as comedians always have to remember and actively remember that. Let's not traumatize the family from North Dakota today. Let's just not right. do it. Let's just not, you know what? You know what that like, because the family, you know, they're sitting there and the parents are feeling cool because they brought their 14 year old son to the show and they're feeling proud of themselves. They're like, look, look, we're being cool parents. We're being cool. And you know what? Maybe, maybe don't go into your eating asset. Maybe don't do that. Maybe- <laughs> Maybe this is not the time to try that bit out. Maybe that isn't because you're just really angry at your girlfriend. Like, that's just not a good idea. Right. Well, part of it probably has to do with the venue, too. Like, do you ever, uh, uh, this just occurred to me, I thought, have you ever in that kind of situation where you're in a comedy club that's known for being a nasty comedy club, all the comedians who are on stage are doing the nasty shit, and yet there's like one person you see in the crowd that you're like, that person's just going to hate their life after hearing everything I have to say. You know yeah. what I mean? I would say if you're going to like a bar show, you should expect some um, ass eating jokes that you you need to absolutely be ready for. If you're going to a comedy club, though, and you're going to an eight o'clock show, chances are you are fine. I think it's more of the time of show. Um, like if you're doing an 11 o'clock show once like everybody's like had their drinks then like, yeah, 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 thank you. You should expect some, definitely some more of the raunchier material. If you're going to a bar show, you should expect some raunchier material. Uh, but it's so funny though, cause like I'll, um, I've performed in the South and I go there and there was one club that was the, the owners were definitely, I think more evangelical. And they were like, we really just like to keep things clean. Please keep your use of the to just once per show. And just know that. And I'm like, okay, cool. Thank you. And the last show, I just kind of was like, fuck it. And (laughs) I did the dirtiest bit in my arsenal just because I wanted to see what happened. And it killed more than anything. 
thing I had done that entire week because I was like, you dirty motherfucking Christians. Like you guys yeah. have been like, no, they want the dirty. They want the dirtiest fucking shit. They do. What dirtiest shit. Yeah. And I'm just like, oh my God, you kinky motherfuckers. <laughs> and I, it's, it's always you it's it's always and i've always found that whenever anybody is just like these are conservative crowds and i'm just like oh so you that 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 always to me equals do the dirty shit because always it's the conservative crowds who likes the dirty stuff and it always happens Mm -hmm. it's never not happened yet and i'm sure it will at some point but it's not happened yet it's the crowds that, like, I think would be really into the dirty stuff who are like, no, they want, like, surreal, abstract, do your stuff on, like, you know, the Edwardian period. That I'm just like, fuck you, Brooklyn. I wanted to do dirty shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's kind of like the old line about Americans, right? Puritans in public, but perverts in private. And so, yeah. you know, you can project that all you want. But at the end of the day, yeah, you think it's funny. No doubt. Yeah, it always happens that way. <laughs> I'm just like, I, ah, it, 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 so yeah, it's, it's, it's always hard to tell. And it's always something where what I was um, sort of brought up learning with standup is don't open dirty, really save your dirty jokes towards the end and sort of throw out some feelers in there to see like what you think will land. Um, And if your clean jokes aren't working, maybe then like, it's just one of those things where it, it, every audience is different. And I think that people there no i i can hold on i can find my words for this one i think when you're starting out and when you're not a household name you really need to take some cues from the crowd but once you do become a household name then you can go and talk about whatever you want and the audience will come to you Mm -hmm. um but like someone like me who's like i'm a no name um no one you know very few people are going to come see me a comedy club unless you know they they are my my one of my random tiktok followers which you know i love you guys you guys are my bread and butter you guys make my heart go ring a ding ding and um but nobody is gonna know me so i really need to i need to court the audience as you would i need to like show them like no i'm not crazy i'm not i mean i am but like i'm not i'm not that form of crazy i need to win you over first and then we can get into the crazy dirty stuff once we sort of have that trust built up mm-hmm. like like a couple very much yeah <laughs> the um so i the, the interesting thing is and folks listening um if you haven't checked out laura on tiktok you're you're doing yourself a disservice um that's actually how i first came across you that's the whole reason we're having this conversation right now is you had, not I, go I, back I, into it was the um it was the the jesus if i broke into your house right now and getting out all the water jugs, which yes. for somebody who comes from a Catholic family was just absolutely hysterical. I sent it to every single one of my family members. I'm like, you have got to see this. Is so fucking funny. Um, but one of the things that you've talked about um, a lot on TikTok um, is the infertility industry. Mm-hmm. So rather than asking a guiding question to get you to where I want to answer, I just want to go, what the fuck is going on? Like for those of us who are completely out of the know, what's it, what's happening here? What, you don't keep up on sperm banks? No, not since my, I mean, usually just for conversation, but not in depth. So uh, for anybody who's, who's who doesn't know that side of my material, I'm a sperm donor baby. I was conceived in 1987. I was born in 1988. I was um, created. I was made, uh, not conceived um, uh, like a Toyota um, in a clinic from New York City. 
And I've known that I was donor conceived since I was 14 years old. And I, as I've gotten older, I've learned more and more about the infertility clinic. I've learned more about my donor conception. I have figured out and I've found out who my donor is. I've so far found three donor conceived siblings, although my donor was donating for at least six years during medical school. He is a still practicing OBGYN. Yeah, no, that that should give you some shivers for a reason. And so he was donating for at least six years. I could easily have over 50 siblings, easily. Um, And the thing that I talk about a lot is the infertility industry is like one of the best kept secrets of the medical industry. It is one of the most unregulated branches of medicine. There There are shockingly very few regulations. Even people who work in healthcare are shocked when they learn about this because they are like, we, that's impossible though. That's impossible. There, there's no way that's actually true. And it's, it's really bad. Um, and one of the things that I use my, my humor and my comedy that I should say, at least I attempt to do is bring to light the, so the injustice that happens, talk about the changes that mo- uh, the majority of donor conceived kids would like to see happen. And I talk about um, my story. I talk about other people's stories who have been very hurt by the infertility industry. And yeah, it's a it's a weird little it's a weird little issue. And it's something where like I know the infertility issue and the issues within it are like not the number one problem within this world. Like I'm very aware of it, but all the issues are so easily solved. And this is something that is not a bipartisan issue. This is not really a political issue like it's very common sense any issues that i bring forth with it it doesn't matter republican democrat libertarian liberal it doesn't matter it's all very common sense issues so you know yay sperm yeah (laughs) that was one of the that's just a i mean you could just say that word and get everybody excited um why was he why was he doing this through medical school? Was it just he needed the money and this was his way to pay for college or? I have no idea. I mean, I tried reaching out to him because um, I really need my medical history, but he will not answer. Um, I'm assuming it was it must have been for financial reasons. I've done a background check on him and um, he's been in financial issues um, many, many, many times throughout the um, 90s and early 2000s. So I would not be surprised if he was using the money. Maybe he was paying for medical school. Maybe he, there was something else happening. I'm not sure, but he definitely does not seem fiscally responsible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I, and that's the reason why most donors do, uh, because they pay very, very well in the United States. Um, and I mean, they pay decently and especially with there's so many doctors um, who end up donating because all the clinics go to the doctors and they're like, why don't you help out this young couple? It's great. It's easy. You'll have no responsibility and you just have to jack off into a cup and you make money. I mean, that sounds great. Mm-hmm. That sounds amazing. Um, and then they, you know, they purposely don't tell them about any ethical implications that might happen. It's such as. Um, so one of, so basically the only thing that the FDA requires of banks nationally in the United States is an STD test. That's it. That's it. 
That's that's all the FDA requires. They do not require medical history. They what? do not require a psychological background test. They don't. They recommend you do all of those things. They do not require it. They do not require verification of any of these things. All they require is an STD test. Hmm. So, so <coughs> you are donating typically when you are between the ages of like 18 to 30, but like typically the age is like normally like 25 and you are donating and you're filling out your little application. And sometimes the applications are literally just what are your, what's your IQ and what's your height. Sometimes they're a little bit more in depth, but nothing is verified. They don't do a check on it. They don't go like, Hey, can you just supply like a doctor's note to make sure that everything you say is accurate? Uh, obviously when you're 25 years old, you're young, you're healthy, nothing is wrong. It's when you get older that medical issues pop up. Mm -hmm. And so you are donating anonymously. So as you're getting older, more health issues are popping up. Your donor conceived child has no idea. They mm -hmm. don't know that they need screenings for this. Um, they don't know that um, all these cancers are popping up. They have no idea. Um, or they don't know maybe that you later in life got diagnosed with bipolar disorder or schizophrenia, uh, which has happened to a couple of friends of mine. And they're, and they, they don't, there's, there's no, they don't leave any way for those donors to contact the donor conceived kids. Mm -hmm. So these donor conceived kids are just left in the dark they um, donor conceived kids have died needlessly um, due to the lack of medical information. Um, also, not to mention, there's no cap. There is no uh, nationwide cap on how many children can come from a donor. Oh, geez. There's no cap. Again, this is common sense. What I'm saying is not I'm not spouting anything that's crazy. I'm mm -hmm. not saying something that like only blondes can donate. All I'm saying is maybe we should have a cap. Right. Yeah. Maybe. Weird, weird little thought because donor conceived siblings have been matched on Tinder. Guy, Because hmm. we don't know who our siblings are. Right. Yeah, for sure. We don't know. And they have, um, I recently had an interview with somebody who used to work in like outreach and marketing for a clinic in 2013 and 14. And um, one of their donors maxed out, meaning that they had 50 confirmed live births in the United States and 75 confirmed overseas. She took this to her higher ups and she presented this and was like, we have to stop using this donor. That donor happened to be their most popular donor. Whenever any of his sperm came in, it sold out within a week. And the owner of the clinic, her boss, whomever was like, nope, he's our most popular and there's no regulation against it. So we're going to keep using it. I mean, technically what they're doing is legal, is the thing. Like, mm -hmm. it's all legal, but it's insanely unethical. It's incredibly yeah. un unethical. The parents don't know any of this. The parents are assuming, like, this must be just a like, they, they They have no idea. And the kids don't know. And obviously, if you are, if all of your sperm, like, hypothetically is in, like, New York City, Chances are most of the kids are also going to be in New York City. Now, sometimes mm. the sperm is shipped to other states, to other countries. Um, sometimes the donor doesn't even realize that. But most of it typically stays within the same area. Um, there's another donor who I've um, spoken to, his lawyer, who um, his natural-born kids went to the same school as his donor-conceived kids. They had no idea. 
Wow. In the same class. Wow. Especially if you move forward, like generationally speaking, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, like, let's say it's 150 kids. Each of those 150 kids has two kids. Each of their kids has two kids. You know, you move down the line and you're like, oh my God, eventually like, that's just New York City now is this guy's one gene pool. I, I never, um, it always made me, I didn't know any of this um, prior, prior to you. I do remember being in my early 20s and some friends were talking, you know, and of course, like most people, when you're in your early 20s, you're financially like, good Lord, I'd do anything for 20 bucks right oh. now. It's just, you know, and I remember some friends talking like, hey, you know, if we, there's a, there's a sperm bank over there. And if you go there, you know, I mean, you're going to do it anyway tonight. So you might as well get paid for it, you know? And I, I have to admit, like the whole idea of it made me insanely uncomfortable purely just because the last thing I wanted in my life was 20 years from now, some, you know, some kid shows up and says, Hey dad, you remember that time you donated to a sperm bank? Well, I'm your kid. And I'd be like, I don't know how you can prove that. Um, do you have a bad knee? Yeah. Heart issue, crippling anxiety. Yeah. You're my kid. Great. You know, that's, that's like, none of that is anything I ever wanted to deal with in my life. So, but that is for how regulated so much of the medical field is that sounds so insanely bizarre that it is that lax with everything it is insanely bizarre um and i agree with you and i think there's a few reasons why i think a lot of it is to do with shame infertile being infertile has still that stigma about it that it is a shameful thing that you should be ashamed of so nobody talks about it no one talks about it this is something that everybody even if something goes wrong it's our it's a shameful secret and that sucks. That's stupid. It's nothing to be ashamed of. Me ha struggling with infertility is something that is so insanely common. No one should be ashamed of that. And that shame has allowed these doctors to sort of hide because they know you, you're not going to talk about it. They know you're not going to talk about it because if you start talking about it, then you have to admit that you struggled with infertility. Mm -hmm. That's not going to happen. Um, so whereas a lot of the medical industry has been like oh shit we have to like you know enough things have come forward that we have to provide regulations very few things have come forward enough so they've been able to sort of scoop by with the bare minimum and have been raking in so much fucking money so much money with no repercussions the thing that's actually called them out the most is ancestry 23andme those dna tests they never saw coming those freaking things are what is currently bringing the infertility industry down wow. <laughs> it's why i tell everybody go go do it go take the test i'm like even if you know because honestly you don't know but you even if you know you're not a donor conceived kid still take it because you might be the answer to a donor conceived kid you might be able because your uncle could have donated and now suddenly they're able to talk to them and get their medical history and find out how many years they're donating what clinics they donated to all these things they can have it um so i always encourage everybody i'm like no no, no go go do it because you trust me you're helping and you're you could be also helping an adoptee out like go do it um there's so many donor conceived kids there's so many adoptees looking for their family looking for some kind of answers to a medical history that what you could be providing actually could be life-saving mm -hmm. um so i always encourage everybody to do it and but yeah no um the infertility industry did not see those those two companies coming up yeah 
yeah, it's, well, it's made waves. Well, and part of the thing that uh, probably doesn't help the fact is that regulations for fertility clinics isn't a sexy political cause that some politician's going to take up. You know, like you can go after the big banks and you can go after this and you can go after that. I'm going after infertility clinics. It's not sexy, but it would be a very easy. But here, this is why I would um, want any politician to kind of think about it is one. This is a very bipartisan issue. Mm -hmm. This is not. This is something it doesn't matter whether what you believe you can get behind this very easily this is common sense nobody's asking for something crazy here this is very basic um and it is something where if you are a newer politician this can be a great front page thing of why haven't we talked about this you could break ground and you are saving children's lives literally saving children's lives. Not only are you saving donor conceived kid li- kids lives, but you're also really helping out the donors who are, let's be honest, even though yes, they're 18, they're still freaking kids and they're being lied to and poached by infertility clinics. And this doesn't really go for sperm donors, but for egg donors, getting eggs out is a very complicated process that has a lot of side effects. You Getting your eggs out, um, can also cause infertility. It also ups your chance for cervical cancer. And somehow the clinics don't really like to to warn them about that. Mm. They don't like talking about those side effects or they like saying, well, there's just not been enough research done on it. So like, why even tell you the side effects? Well, and- Bullshit, like we know. Right, yeah. Um, And when you think about it, even if I like attempt to play devil's advocate with it, and even if some rival politician was taking that up as their cause and you had to find a way to oppose them, I don't see how anywhere you have an argument to make. Oh, it's fine the way it is. We've been jerking off in cups for 70 years now. I don't see why we change it now. And yeah, that's that's bizarre is the word I keep coming to. No, any of like the bare, the the only thing that um, most donor conceived kids are for that I, I understand why people have a massive hesitancy towards is um, 94% of donor. Now, well, I should say donor conceived kids, we, there's not been a lot of data taken on us. So all of these like sort of like polls that have been taken are very, very small um, because no one wants our reactions because if uh, no one wants to hear from us but a small poll that was taken i believe it was like um like 700 uh donor conceived kids um from we are donor conceived were asked do you think anonymity should be allowed 94 percent of donor conceived kids saying no anonymity should be banned mm-hmm. that can get controversial and i understand why that makes people uncomfortable what I always tell people is we're actually behind with that one. Most first world nations banned anonymity because of the amount of problems with it. Yeah. Um, and the reason that anonymity should be banned is not because the kid needs another mom, another dad. That's not the case in the least bit. There's no donor conceived kids who don't look at their parents who raised them as their parents. That's just, that's just not a thing. That's a huge misnomer. Um, the reason that we need it is doctors have switched out their own sperm their sperm for the donor sperm so many times and they've been able to hide behind it because of the anonymity because if you don't know who the donor is you can't double check things right so it when you remove the anonymity 
it makes it much harder for the doctors to do that. It makes it significantly harder for the doctors to um, lie about medical history or any kind of background history about the donors, which they do all the freaking time. They still do it to this day. Um, and it allows the donor-conceived child to get up-to-date medical history. With most countries besides the United States, the anonymity goes away when the child is 18, and then they are handed the donor's contact information. That's how it works with most countries. Um, they have found that to be like, no, this is significantly safer um, because they sort of been like, yep, too many children have died. Too many children have ended up being their doctor's children. Like, we can't trust anonymity anymore. Like, the infertility, you lost our trust with that. That is the one issue that I understand why that gives some people the heebie-jeebies. I get it, but that is definitely something that the donor-conceived kids are definitely fighting for. But I, I can, it's one of those things where it's like, okay, we can put that one to the side, but can we at least get like verified medical history? Can we at least get a cap? Like, I'm willing to settle for this now and I'll convince you of this later. I will, I, we'll get there. We'll get there. Let's do this first. Yeah, baby steps. I accept that. No pun intended. Steps. Exactly. And like, I, I get it. I understand why that makes people uncomfortable. Um, but I do think when you really look at the research and you talk to enough donor conceived kids, you go, oh, I get it. Okay, this actually does make the most sense. But I, again, I understand why it makes people uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. 100%. Um, so we are uh, reaching the point where we are up against the clock. Where all can uh, folks follow you at? Um. The two best places to follow me, obviously, are TikTok. Please do that because that would be really nice. Um, at Laura High Five. Um, if you also follow me on Instagram, which is also at Laura High Five, and also on Twitter, at Laura High Five. Instagram is definitely a big place where I post a lot of my shows. Same with Twitter, everything like that. Um, and you'll see some cute pictures of my dog if you follow me on Instagram. I have a pug. She's adorable. Um, but TikTok is definitely like my main source of like content. So if you just want to see like pretty much daily um, videos, that's where to go for me. You'll see me making a lot, a lot of jokes about the donor, about donor conception. Um, I will actually be dropping a new story about um, the infertility industry tomorrow, which um, is a groundbreaking story. It is the hot off the press news. So please follow me to get that story firsthand. Extra, extra. I love it. I am not only going to be uh, talk. I'm going to be naming a very awful clinic. So it's going to be very exciting. I, I'm already, I'm going to mark it on my calendar. This is great. Yes. Yeah. Smash no, it. We're, we're, we're naming some names. Um, yeah. So I, I got, I got some, um, some firsthand accounts and it's like, oh, basically um, in the text conversation with my contact, they said, I want to watch it burn down. And I was like, you gave me fuel. I'm lighting the match. <laughs> and i was just like nah no nah, we're we're bringing this people we're, we're bringing them down it's time mm -hmm. it, it's like no no no. this we we have we have the evidence let's do it yeah absolutely no reason not to yeah i um, love it i love it um hey any plans to come to the midwest again anytime soon i'm kind of upset that uh i heard you were in aurora after i, I found out who you were it's like oh man like that would have been perfect hopefully soon again um i mean right now with the new variant uh there, there's just not as many shows getting booked at at the second but i'm sure when it comes like march i'm sure i'm going to be doing like intense road work again so mm. i i'm sure it will happen i've been um begging my booker to actually get me booked in milwaukee because i have a lot of followers in that area oh okay um, 
but I hope to go back to Chicago again because oh, it was so wonderful. Uh, it really, really was. Um, so hopefully soon, hopefully soon. Just you know, I will. I I will go do stand up at that lady's house with the doilies. Like I'll I'll do some stand up for them. Oh really? Do you like tea? I love tea and we'll spill the tea. It'll be great. <laughs> I'll see if I can get in touch with them. I think they pay fifty bucks. Is that? I'm a I'm a cheap date. That's fine. <laughs> you get me fifty bucks and a pizza. Like we'll have a conversation. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Well, that's what we'll do. Um, we'll book that. I'll get in touch with them. Be like, hey, I know this gal. She does really great infertility and dick jokes. She's amazing, and they will hop on it. I'm sure. I'm <laughs> sure that sounds perfect for them. Well, uh, Laura, I absolutely cannot thank you enough for coming on the show. It's been an absolute delight. Um, cannot wait. I'm going to keep a close eye on your schedule and really hope to catch you live sometime. Because yeah, be absolutely, absolutely. Well, I'm going to. Uh, Bid you goodbye for now. I uh, want to say thank you to everybody listening and or watching on YouTube. Um, check out Laura High. You, there's no way you will be disappointed. None yeah, whatsoever. Thank you. I appreciate it. Unless you're a donor dad, in which case, it, but you know, comedy is all about feeling uncomfortable sometimes. So uh, okay. Yeah. I, I mean, it, I mean, like, I know you were young. I know. But if you, if you really thought that creating a child would have no consequences i don't know what to tell you <laughs> right you walked like, into that one bud <laughs> you, I, I, i'm sorry man like i i understand you were coerced but like uh, <laughs> maybe you shouldn't have gotten that xbox right yeah yeah i hope the 300 bucks was worth it yeah sorry <laughs> all right well thank you so much laura and uh yeah hopefully we'll catch you again sometime talk to you all soon thank you thank you all right, folks. So that was the podcast with Laura High. Um, she's absolutely amazing. I hope you enjoyed that podcast. I certainly enjoyed making it. Um, go follow her on every platform uh, that you can, um, especially TikTok. She's absolutely hysterical. Um, I cannot wait to catch her live sometime. That's like one of my top priority things right now. But I want to say thank you to each and every one of you listening. I hope you could do me a favor. Please like, subscribe, share, all that good stuff. And if you're listening to this on an Apple device, there's a spot up in the corner to leave a review. If you could do that, it would be amazing. Every single little bit of that helps grow this thing and keep it moving forward. But I'm going to get out of here and let you go. Um, once again, thanks for listening. I want to say I love all of you. Take care of each other. And until next time, bye-bye.